Welcome to Marx's Voice, bringing you ideas and analysis from Socialist Appeal, the Marxist voice of labour and youth. For regular updates, subscribe to our podcast through SoundCloud, iTunes or any major podcast provider. Or visit our website at www.socialist.net where you can donate and subscribe to our paper online and help support us in the struggle for socialism. If you read the old school textbooks, which I can remember when I was a, a, a young man, the English Revolution is presented in a very simple way. Uh, in point of fact, they never referred to the English Revolution at all. They referred to the Civil War. And the Civil War is reduced in very simple terms to a class between individuals, between the king on the one side and uh, John Pym on the other hand, you know, a class between king and parliament. This same ridiculously uh, oversimplified view of history was repeated, I'm, I'm sorry to say, in, the, in a broadcast by the BBC, which finally, after decades, decided that, uh, in its wisdom, that the English Revolution had actually taken place and was worthy even of a programme of uh, several episodes. I think it was called The Downfall of a King. Uh, it was a, a complete travesty of a programme, and it repeated the same nonsense about... Uh, the king versus Pym and Pym versus the king. That's about it. Insofar as they referred to the masses at all, they referred to the, to the, the, apprentices, the apprentices, for example, as uh, drunken, lumpen proletarians and hooligans running rampage over the Christmas holidays. That was about the, the long and short of it. Fortunately, this uh, caricature, because that's what it is, ridiculous caricature of a great historical event has been systematically unmasked and demolished brick by brick by quite, a, I think, a great historian, a man by the name of Brian Manning, unfortunately now deceased, who for the first time brought to the fore, it's true it was hinted at by previous authors, but not, not given sufficiently, even by people like Christopher Hill, uh, Morton to a greater extent dealt with it. But above all, Brian Manning, in great detail and with a wealth of... Uh, historical source material, demonstrated beyond a shadow of doubt, it cannot be gainsaid, that the key role of the masses as a motor force in the English, English Revolution. Now this, of course, was, uh, was invisible. It's not to say that the conflict between king and parliament did not exist and did not play an important role. It did, as I explained in the last two, uh, two episodes. On the contrary, the split in the ruling class is always the first indication of the development of a revolution. And this split was expressed clearly in the case of Britain in an open struggle, an increasingly bitter struggle between King Charles and the court clique <clears throat> on the one hand, reflecting, if you like, defending the status quo, the old regime, the old order. And yes, the rising bourgeoisie, yes, I think it's correct to use that expression, the rising bourgeoisie, reflected by the struggle of the House of Commons in particular, to assert itself against the king. And this struggle, of course, uh, reached a critical point, particularly towards the decade of the uh, 1620s. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, between 1621 and 1628, there were five different parliaments were called and five of them were dismissed. Charles himself dismissed, called and dismissed, 
three parliaments from 1625 to 1628. When we left off the last uh, episode with the assassination of the Duke of, uh, of Buckingham, Parliament was once again dismissed and Charles attempted to rule on his own. Now, of course, there are problems with this. The main problem being the question of cash that was always very upper, uppermost along with religion it's true it was uppermost, uppermost in uh, king charles's mind he needed cash and when i say cash i mean a lot of cash mainly for the purpose of foreign wars which which he was constantly embroiled in either wars against Spain or wars against France or whatever. The, the alliances were constantly shifting, constantly changing, according to different uh, complicated questions, which I don't intend to, to go into. The most recent of these elements, I suppose, was the uh, shattering defeat suffered by Charles's uncle, who was the, uh, the monarch of, uh, of, uh, of Denmark in a, in a battle against the... Uh, the empire, the imperial forces defeated him. And of course, the King Charles was anxious to come to his uncle's aid. Problem, no money. It suffered. As a matter of fact, all of these military adventures, which I partly dealt with in the last two episodes, ended in defeat and therefore cost a lot of money. And Charles didn't have the money. He attempt, attempted to raise money without Parliament by means of a forced loan which in principle he was entitled to do, but this was supposed to be for national emergencies. It wasn't supposed to be a normal means of, of raising cash. And that's what he did. That's what he did. Without Parliament, he, he used his uh, monarchical powers to inflict a false loan on the people of, of England. A large part of this was uh, it was squeezed out of the, uh, the wealthier classes, the nobility and the gentry and the particularly the merchants who, who resented it bitterly, uh, needless to say. Uh, but also it fell on the, the poor, the common people. This is, this is never dealt with, but it's a fact. It also was very brutal as far as the, the common people are concerned, because if they failed to deliver what Charles was demanding in terms of cash, even a small amount, which they could not afford, since most of them were living on, on the uh, edge of, of, of hunger, actually, on the edge of destitution, they could be press ganged into the army or the navy, which wasn't a very nice uh, place to be uh, in those days. And therefore, Charles, of course, was very reluctant to call a parliament, very reluctant. He, he now was, by this stage, he was thoroughly allergic to parliaments. He actually said as much, I believe, in a meeting of his, uh, of his council, where somebody, some person mentioned the word parliament, and he just said that... Uh, he shouldn't mention that name because he said that uh, he did he did he did uh, he did abominate that name, even the very name of Parliament. He couldn't stand to to hear it. So he had no intention, of course, of calling Parliament. Unfortunately for him, of course, his his hand was forced. Uh, his forced loan actually incurred a lot of opposition, widespread opposition, including some people that were quite influential. There was the famous case, which is known as the uh, the case of the five knights, the five uh, noblemen, in effect, that uh, that uh, went to court to to question the legality of this forced loan. 
And they were imprisoned, of course. The, the, the courts naturally were the creatures of uh, Charles. They were repeatedly purged. Any judge that pronounced against the king or questioned the king in any way or his laws would himself be uh, liable to be sacked, or if not worse than that. Um, nevertheless, they took it to court, and they really succeeded partially in, in questioning this uh, law. Eventually, they had to be released in, in, in uh, in 1628, if my memory serves me correctly, of course, Charles was, was forced to back down. He personally had ordered their arrest and imprisonment in the Tower of London. He was forced to retreat because of the storm of opposition. So finally, reluctantly, with gritted teeth, on the th 31st of, uh, Jan of uh, January, uh, 1628, Charles was forced to convene a new parliament, his third parliament. And this is quite a decisive uh, moment. He must have realized this. He must have realized also that it was a dangerous step to take. I mean, he, he didn't want to, uh, to face once again the opposition of, of, of a parliament, which necessarily would, be, would now, now be up in arms. They'd have, of course, a lot of cause for complaint. Yes, but he had no alternative but to recall this uh, alien body, as he would... Uh, he would see it. Of course, he took the necessary steps. This man, as I said last week, was a, a maneuverer, an intriguer, a Machiavellian type, not at all the little innocent uh, character that's portrayed, portrayed to us. Oh, no. He took steps to exclude. Uh, they had to call elections, but they had elections in those days, although the franchise was severely restricted, but there were elections. Uh, although the elections, I have to say, were beginning to change. Now, that's an important point, which, again, is often overlooked. It's true that the franchise was uh, completely undemocratic. It uh, restricted the vote to a tiny handful of uh, privileged uh, layers of society. The masses had no say whatsoever. The middle class only partially had some kind of participation. And in the past, up until now, the big landowners, the, the wealthy people, the wealthiest people in the land, and the, the, the rich gentry would determine who would be, who would sit in Parliament. No question about it. In fact, most of the elections never took place because they were returned unopposed. The local gentry would get together, they decide whose turn is it, Joe Bloggs, okay, he goes to Parliament, end of story. Yes, but that was beginning to change. That's a significant point. It was beginning to change. Uh, throughout the, the, the 1620s, and culminating, I would say, in, in 1628, there was a growing interest in Parliament. People began to wake up to the fact of this struggle between Parliament and the King, and that their interests were, were affected. Not just economic interests, but above all, religious uh, interests. Because the King was increasingly, as we deal with, if not today, then next, next week, uh, he was increasingly inclined towards uh, Roman Catholicism, in effect, dragging the Anglican Church to the right towards the, the old ways, which people didn't like. They didn't like that one little bit. He was trying to chip away and reform the Anglican Church from the inside. There was a tendency at that time called Arminianism, which was like not really Roman Catholicism, but semi, a kind of a decaffeinated Roman Catholicism, which was heading, uh, making headway in the church. And Charles was known to be, or believed to, uh, by many people, believed to be sympathetic towards this doctrine. And that was, of course, a red rag to a bull. So for all these reasons, people were interested, more and more interested, particularly the, some of the lower classes, the artisans, perhaps not the very poor people, 
in the form of politics very closely, but certainly the artisans, the lower gentry, the merchants and so on, were increasingly interested and increasingly participated at election time, such that for the first time ever, quite a few seats were, were contested. And new people were being uh, introduced into Parliament for the first time. Now, Charles was aware of this. He was well aware of it. He took steps to try to limit the amount of troublemakers that could enter Parliament. He did this by various uh, slick uh, tactics of uh, giving them uh, posts of sheriff or whatever, which would carry them outside of London, outside of Westminster, and therefore outside of the Parliament. He did this, all, all kinds of tricks. But in spite of all his tricks, for the reasons which I've stated, this new Parliament was a different kind of Parliament. And it wasn't the kind of parliament that, that Charles was, was after. This was, uh, this was a serious problem. And sitting on the, on the benches, on the back benches, I should, as you say today, there was a, a new guy, an unknown, completely youngish, youngish sort of middling uh, landowner from East Anglia, completely unknown character, whose speeches really didn't attract much attention at the time, if, if any attention. The one speech that was reported, he was allegedly made a very sharp attack. This is quite uh, significant, quite uh, typical of the man. A sharp attack against a preacher who he accused of, quote, flat popery or flat popishness or something like that. Um, this uh, man was sitting at the back. He didn't attract much attention. He did, however, not his speeches, but his appearance attracted the attention of a prominent cavalier and a prominent supporter of the king by the name of Sir, Sir Philip Warwick, who com commented not on his speeches, but on his lack of dress sense. Now, there's an interesting quote. I, with your permission, I shall quote this. These are the words of Sir Philip. I came into the house one morning, well clad. He was well dressed. He was well dressed, smartly dressed. Of course, all these rich guys are smartly dressed. I came into the house one morning well clad and perceived a gentleman speaking whom I knew not in very ordinary apparel, not very well dressed at all, in very ordinary apparel, for it was, he noticed every, nothing about the speech, we don't know what the speech was, was about, but he knew everything about his clothes that he was wearing, for it was a plain cloth suit which seemed to have been made by an ill country tailor. There we are. There's a condemnation for you. How can you accept someone like that in, in Parliament? What is, what is the world coming to? His linen was plain. His, let's just say his shirt, his shirt and so on. His, his linen was plain and not very clean. Yes, not, his shirt wasn't very clean. His, his, his linen was plain and not very clean. And I, I remember, this is interesting, I remember a speck or two of blood upon his little band, which was not much larger than his collar. His hat was without a hat band. Horror of horror. Imagine a man coming in without a, without a band on his hat. His hat was without a hat band. His statue, his statue was of a good size. His sword stuck close to his side. His countenance swollen and reddish. His voice sharp and untunable. And his eloquence full of fervor. The name of this uh, gentleman that uh, Sir Philip uh, noticed was none other than Oliver Cromwell. 
At that time, he was a middling land owner in East Anglia, and he was now returned as as the honourable, the honourable member for Huntingdon, I think, which is near Cambridge. Uh, this is interesting, you know. Even even the the words of this cavalier, this rich fat cat, chock full. Every word is full of class hatred, spite, spitefulness, and yes, snobbery. Just plain ordinary vulgar class class snobbery against this uh, this upstart from East Anglia. But strangely enough, you see. Even the comments that he made are actually quite significant because, yes, he was dressed in ordinary clothes because he was an ordinary man representing ordinary people. That's interesting. But, and his voice, of course, which struck uh, this cavalier has been very unpleasant. His voice, sharp and untunable. <laughs> Couldn't make any. It wasn't the kind of smooth, smart, mellifluous kind of talk you expect from politics today also which politicians and lawyers are experts. No, no. This is the gruff voice of a farmer, of a peasant, of a local lad, if you like. And precisely that gruffness, that roughness, which so offended this, with the sensibility and the dress sense of the cavalier, was what appealed later on to the masses, to the soldiers of the, of the, of the, of the, the new model army. His, his, rough, his rough sense of humor, he had a, a very rough sense of humor indeed, rude, rude sense of humor. Yeah, this is what made him a, a, a great mass leader, if you like. But we'll leave Oliver Cromwell to one side because at this stage, he didn't make any serious mark on 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 events. But nevertheless, you see, the, the, the king had entered the parliament with, with high hopes of a, a settlement. Or, above all, high high hopes of getting some money. Incidentally, I see there's a, there's a reason. There's so many revisionist trends in, in history writing today that it takes your breath away. But one of the, one of the, the, the recent historians is, is arguing, oh, no, no, the, the uh, forced loans were a big success, were an outstanding success. Well, I suppose in a sense that's true. In a purely financial, monetary sense, it was true. He raised a lot of money, that's true. Without Parliament, he raised, what, if my memory serves me correctly, correctly uh, in a couple of years from, from 26 to 28, he raised, I think, £243,000. That's a colossal sum of money in those days. So, as a matter of fact, it is the equivalent, I believe, of four subsidies, four parliamentary subsidies. And it's more or less the, the amount, more, roughly the, the same amount, that Parliament refused to give him, which he demanded at the time of, in exchange for the impeachment of, of his mate uh, uh, Buckingham. So it was a lot of money, yeah. Yes, but what these revisionist historians don't understand, don't, don't see, it came at a very heavy price. It undermined his authority considerably. The attempt to impose an illegal tax, because that's what it was on the people of England, was not popular. It was very unpopular, and it provoked resistance, growing resistance, which if it had been allowed to continue, would have threatened the, uh, the status quo. And of course, the, the, the parliament started, it started off with the, the usual, uh, what shall I say, diplomacy and uh, politeness, uh, extreme parliamentary politeness. You know, my noble lords and uh, your majesty and your dread majesty and all this stuff. As if they were going to fool anybody. I don't know whether Charles thought he was going to fool 
the parliament with, with kind words, you know, if we say in, in, there's an English proverb, fine words butter no parsnips. It certainly didn't butter any of his parsnips. No, parliament wasn't impressed by that. They were looking for substance. And they were also looking for revenge. They were seeking to reimpose their authority, reimpose their power, and they were not going to take all this stuff which the king had done lying down, either on economics or on religion. Don't forget the religious question, it's still there. And therefore they, they decided to take action. They, they started to make protests and, and, uh, and criticize the, the king's behavior in the previous period. He then of course immediately took umbrage. He was mortally offended and he also decided to play hardball with parliament. And therefore the stage was set for a class and this class came in March 16, 1629, in March, the 2nd of March to be precise, when Parliament cooked up uh, uh, three resolutions, so they, they'd already moved and, and, and succeeded in passing the Petition of Right, as you remember, which uh, Charles kicked into the long grass and then just dismissed Parliament, yeah? Sure. That, now they came back with three very, very, shall we say, contentious uh, resolutions. Uh, which said the following. The first one was th that they would condemn any move to change religion. Now, Charles had already moved to change religion. He started to revise the articles of the church and so on. He was, he was determined, together with his buddy uh, William Lord, that we will deal with next time, he was determined to, to push the church in this direction. They were determined to push it in the opposite direction. First, first occasion for a severe class. The second point, that they would condemn any taxation without Parliament's authorities. Without Parliament's authority. That was specifically relating to another maneuver of Charles. It's called the uh, tonnage and poundage tax, which was an ancient tax, which sometimes was used by the, the monarchy. But it had to be approved by Parliament, and Parliament had not approved it. Therefore, it was illegal. And they, 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 they stated that anyone that, uh, that attempted to collect that tax would be guilty of a capital offence against the commonwealth, against the kingdom and the commonwealth. Capital offence means death penalty. That's pretty tough stuff, I would have thought. And last but not least, this is a good one, that any merchant who paid illegal taxes, that includes, uh, that includes forced loans and so on, betrayed the liberty of England. Yeah, that's also a, 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 an offence, equivalent to treason, I suppose. This is strong stuff. And of course, they knew by, it was like throwing a hand grenade into uh, Parliament when they attempted to move, and it provoked uproar in the House. After the second of March, the whole House was in an uproar. Uh, they almost came to blows. There were some of them shouting that they should take the motion. Others were saying that they should not take the motion. The king was moving heaven and earth. Charles was moving heaven and earth to stop the motion, these resolutions being put. And for this purpose, uh, on the 10th of March, that's the, the decisive date, 10th of March, 1629, Sir John Finch, who was the, ch the chairman, the speaker, it still exists, that post, the speaker of the House of Commons, under instructions from Charles, attempted to uh, halt the session, which the Speaker can do according to parliamentary procedure quite easily, simply by getting up and leaving the, the room. The Speaker goes, the session must be adjourned. Yes, but it didn't quite work. Sir John Finch, poor chap, he, he tried to stand up, he tried to carry out 
his majesty's orders, and he was immediately pounced upon by a series of, of, uh, of MPs. I've forgotten their names now. I think Sir John Elliot was one, that's for sure. Uh, I think uh, Denzel, Sir Denzel Hollis was another, and the other one was uh, Benjamin Valentine, I think. Yes, those three. Three MPs. Walked straight up to the speaker, whose person is supposed to be in violet, grabbed him by the arms, forced him back into his chair, and held him by force in his seat until these resolutions had been debated and passed. Now imagine the uproar. Imagine the uproar in Parliament. Well, this is taking place. Now, tumultuous scenes that have never been seen anything like it. And finally, despite all the calls and the shouts and the, the, the protests and so on of the, of the Cavaliers, of the pro-royalist pro faction, all three resolutions were passed. Of course, Charles was not pleased. Charles was, 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 was thunderstruck. You know, his, his position, as, as we know, is that princes are, I'm quoting here, princes are not bound to give account of their actions, but to God alone. And therefore, this was an, this was, what, what was this? This was an open act of rebellion. That's what it was, an open act of rebellion. He said as much, he said as much at the time. I've forgotten the actual phrase that he used. It doesn't matter. He accused them of sedition anyway, which, which it clearly was. And therefore, he took the only possible dis, uh, course of action open to him. He dissolved Parliament. Yet again, he dissolved Parliament unilaterally without any uh, oh and for good measure he ordered the arrest of the uh, principal troublemakers in parliament apparently the queen had something to do with that queen Henrietta maria that was pushing him from the the silence perhaps he didn't need much pushing anyway he was sufficiently uh, angry he ordered that they were arrested they were taken to the tower they had to be released subsequently because of the popular uh, uproar the, the, the protests but nevertheless, he took the fateful step of, of, of dissolving Parliament. That was on the 10th of, uh, 10th of March, 1629. Remember that date. Because, you see, I believe that when he took this step, obviously it was, I suppose it, must, it must have been expected. I think the parliamentarians are not fools, not naive people. They must have realized what the consequences of the, the rebellion would be. They were probably confidently expecting to be uh, dissolved. Yes, but I don't think any of them expected that the parliament would be dissolved for 11 years. Because that's what occurred. And that is a new situation altogether. Charles took the decision that he would suspend, well, dissolve parliament, which was not reconvened. I think that was, in, that was in March 1629. It was not reconvened until, I think, April. 1640, that's right, April 1640, 11 years. With some history books and Charles's, Charles's supporters and he himself would describe as the period of personal rule, that's a kind way of putting it. Uh, his enemies, the parliamentarians, would describe it more accurately, I think, as the 11 years of tyranny. And therefore, that's the next chapter in our story. 11 years of tyranny, which inevitably ultimately led to the outbreak of the revolution and civil war. But of that, thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Marx's Voice. 
you can subscribe to our podcast through SoundCloud, iTunes, or any major podcast provider. Or visit our website at www.socialist.net. And if you're able to, please donate or subscribe online and help support us in the struggle for socialism.